Dennis, usually you talk about Western herbal medicine. That's that's what you mostly talk mm. about. But today we're going to look at something a little different from the Islamic tradition. We are, Jane. It's a fascinating story, and it's a fascinating story as to how I became interested in the the herbs of the Islamic uh, society community. And uh, we'll talk about one of the most famous herbs in the Islamic tradition, uh, a herb, fortunately, which we know about, but probably don't know its full possibilities and capacity. And a lot of that arose from the writings of a very famous um, Islamic scholar. We'll talk about that. When you are FM, health naturally. Let's talk about this herb, Dennis Stewart, first oh, off. Oh, okay. First of all, let's, let's look at uh, the background, the history of what we might call Arab or Arabian or Middle Eastern medicine. Uh, a lot of listeners might be interested or surprised to know that it was basically a, a result of the scholars of the early uh, Islamic era uh, that medicine as we know it has survived. Now, people say, what do you mean? Well, at the fall of the Roman Empire and the destruction of that great uh, library in Alexandria, a lot of the medical knowledge of the Greeks, the philosophy, the ideas of them, was pretty well lost to Western civilization. Fortunately, another community was emerging as a result of the, the, the political and religious movement that started with, with Muhammad, and arising from that were a lot of scholars. And one of the most important scholars of that whole era was a chap that is known today in Western, uh, in Middle Eastern, in all systems of medicine as the Prince of Physicians. And his name was Avicenna. Now, that's probably not a good pronunciation of it, but um, it's close enough. Avicenna, or some would say Ibn Sina. He lived in about oh, 1000 uh, AD and was a, a brilliant mind and a brilliant scholar um, in that community in which he was raised. It is said that he could quote uh, the, the, the Quran even before he was a teenager. A brilliant mind. And he went on um, to re revive and, if you like, regurgitate and bring back into, into play a lot of the Greek ideas on medicine. In other words, uh, looking at medicine uh, systematically, trying to give it a philosophy. And he brought back the four humours that characterise Greek medicine uh, and brought it back into medicine via this community. Fortunately, as a result of that, even Western medicine up until a couple of hundred years ago uh, had a basis to it based on what this man did. Now, the interesting thing about it is uh, he also, in a book entitled The Canon, uh, which to this day is re regarded as a remarkable uh, and, and magnificent epic that can never be repeated, that book, The Canon, by Avicenna, is essentially a system of medicine based on the Greek ideas that were saved by this Islamic community and incorporating many, many, many herbs. And so the, the, the medicine of the Middle East, the medicine of Islam, as I understand it, is very much indebted uh, to this man, his ideas, and his system is still practiced. And of course, a lot of the herbs that he spoke about uh, are frequently mentioned, uh, even in our system. And one of them uh, is, a, is a fascinating herb, which we've all heard about, and perhaps even used, but really have not done justice to its uh, benefits. And I'm talking about the well-known herb fenugreek. 
yeah. fenugreek. I, I had an interesting introduction to it, Jane, uh, in about 2009 at the culmination of a one-year postgraduate program that I taught in Melbourne where I'd fly down once a month and, and teach a whole day of herbal medicine on a particular system. The last uh, night of the seminar, I was taken out to a, a, a Melbourne restaurant by a student who was a well-known gastroenterologist in the Islamic community in Melbourne. And we had a lovely dinner together and we, we developed a, a very keen relationship. But he, he gave me a book, uh, which I still have and refer to it. It's in my library in New Lambton there. Um, it's entitled uh, Medicine of the Prophet. It was given to me as a gift. And in that is some of the most fascinating and illuminating information on the way in which the herb fenugreek is used particularly in that community and the way in which we have still got a lot to learn about this remarkable remedy. So we have used it in our kitchens, oh, we some have. of us, haven't we? We have. Look, it, it's, it, it's in curry, for instance. It gives curry its flavour. But we do it in injustice when we fail to appreciate that of many of the herbs that this great scholar wrote about and of many of the herbs mentioned by the prophet himself, fenugreek is right at the top there for its uh, medicinal, life-saving, culinary and cosmetic purposes. And I want to talk a little bit about the way in which knowing a bit more about fenugreek can assist us in managing a lot of the health problems that we experience. Fortunately, it's a food, it's perfectly safe, but with profound possibilities for addressing many common conditions that we experience in our society. To NURFM's Health Naturally and Dennis Stewart, we're talking about, in the first instance, fenugreek. Mm, mm. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more okay. about it and okay. how it's used? Okay. Look, it's a very ancient crop. It's a, it belongs uh, to the leguminaceae family. That is, it's a legume. Mm -hmm. And it's cultivated all around the world, particularly in the Middle East, and in India, and it produces a seed. So it is the seed of this legume known as fenugreek, which is harvested and is used as a food and is used as a medicine. We purchase it quite easily from our health food stores or I suspect even from our supermarkets where it comes in little packages of a very small seed. Now that seed contains a magnificent spectrum of uh, nutritional and uh, I would call them uh, pharmacological or certainly medical properties. And interestingly, it uh, can be used quite simply. We can also purchase it as a powder, and I suggest that's probably, if you're going to harness the herb in any way that we're going to talk about today, that purchasing it as the powder is probably the easiest way to go. And the, my reading on it uh, suggests that Normally speaking, uh, a heap teaspoonful of the powder, a fenugreek powder taken on its own or with other things uh, mixed with, with, with water or any other substance, but a teaspoonful of the powder a couple of times a day induces some of the properties that it has which are nutritional and medicinal. So it's a powder, a powder from the seeds of this cultivated plant uh, which can also uh, be used in stock feed, etc. But it is the seed uh, powdered or purchased as a seed. Some, for instance, purchase the seed and, uh, and uh, throw a teaspoonful of the seeds into a pot and boil it up and, uh, and drink what you might call the decoction, 
which harnesses the actives from the herb, or then go on to, to munch and chew away at the softened cheese. Uh, seed. I prefer to use the powder if I'm going to if I'm going to use it. I actually use a, a fluid extract of it in, in my prescribing. But uh, for the sake of seeing it as a nutritional substance, uh, and I'm suggesting that it should be seen as that primarily, brought into our diet, purchasing it in a powdered form and using it in teaspoonful levels is a good way to begin to harness the properties of this particular herb. So uh, you'd, you'd better tell us just mm, what it's going to do okay, for okay. us. Oh, look, this, this is the exciting part about it. I'll only, um, I'll only mention some of the properties, Jane. <laughs> okay. we, we mentioned one before the program, which I dare not mention on the program. But uh, to be fair, uh, one of its primary uh, virtues is its ability to help nourish uh, the ageing, to help nourish people that, that are not thriving, to uh, help people go through a convalescence where there's been weight loss and, and an accompanying anorexia, a disinterest in food, the history of fenugreek as a component of one's diet, part of one's diet, is that it has the ability to stimulate um, nutritional benefit, improvement in appetite, um, improvement in weight. It promotes weight gain where weight gain is needed. So in the, in the ageing or elderly community, or as we all get older uh, and become more frail, certainly that's my situation as I approach 105. Uh, as we, we go <laughs> We're down, all approaching as 105. We, as we go down that track, fenugreek, based on its long history in Middle Eastern culture, uh, based on the understanding of it that we have from Avicenna, based on the uses of it that were even mentioned by the prophet, it's a great food to resist some of the falterings and failings of our digestive system as we get older where losing weight is not a good thing. I'm one of these that believe that uh, losing weight in the ageing process is is not good and that's supported by the way by nearly every traditional system of medicine I see. So fenugreek would have been used and is still used as a medicinal, uh, medicinal food to resist this process of decline, weight loss, lack of appetite, all the sorts of things we see uh, frequently amongst our elderly community. So that's one virtue of it. Another great virtue of it from the point of view of uh, uh, medical practice is that it has incredibly soothing characteristics. Now, everything that I'm saying here is based on an understanding of the chemistry contained in these little seeds. Before I came away today, I went to my library, which, by the way, I've just had reorganised in my little study, my garden study. It looks fantastic. My wife's very impressed. It looks very roomy. More well space done. for me to put more books. As, as, as I came away this morning, I checked uh, on fenugreek from Potter's Cyclopedia. The number of constituents in the herb are profound. Nutritional, pharmacological, uh, a whole range of them. So everything that can be said about fenugreek's possibility or possibilities, uh, everything that can be said can be related to an understanding of its chemistry. So for those out there that say, oh, there's Dennis Stewart again, turning something into a, a substance that it's not, well, hello, go and look at the literature, check the literature, and you will see that in Potters it's called up as a nutritive. Potters is a scientific text. A nutritive substance is something that promotes nutritional value. Hence, its virtue 
in my opinion, to assist in some syndromes associated with ageing. Also, coming to the gut, it contains well-known mucolaginous constituents. Now, mucolage is also contained in herbs like slippery elm and marshmallow, which we've spoken about frequently, particularly slippery elm. But in this particular herb, it has given to it the reputation for being one of the most soothing and protective foods for the upper gut and the lower gut. So even in the literature, it's referred to as being potentially useful for some levels of even dealing with colitis, a disease of the large bowel, where its soothing characteristics can work with any medical approach and not conflict with any drug therapy to heal the bowel wall. So that's a remarkable area for its use. The upper gut, where this mucolaginous or slimy principle protects the upper gut wall from ulceration, from reflux, all those sorts of things, give to the herb a well-known ability even to address that area. And even in a urinary tract conditions, where there's discomfort, uh, where there's periodic episodes of cystitis, the use of this herb uh, sees some ability for it to, to soothe an irritable bladder condition and, again, not conflict with anything that the doctor might prescribe but arguably provide an ongoing preventative basis. So there are some of the areas where it's most famous. To NURFM Health Naturally with Dennis Stewart. Sid, you've rung in from 1G and you've got a comment on fenugreek. Uh, yes, um, Jane and Dennis. Hello, Sid. Yes. How are you? Hi. Good, thanks, good, mate. Good, good. I just, I just wanted to let you know that oh, some time ago now, a few months, three months or something like that ago, I um, was listening to you talking to someone one day about a lot of uh, like nasal drip and congestion yes. in their throat. Yes. And you mentioned fenugreek. Yes. And so I decided to go out and get some, and since then I've been taking it. And I have to say, it's been amazing. Yes. Well, that, it's not amazing to me because I was getting a bit wound up there with Jane about all the possibilities yeah. of this herb, and I was a bit worried that people might think that I was going to embrace nearly every disease known to mankind. <laughs> but but uh, fenugreek, fenugreek is a famous remedy in my prescribing for what I call upper respiratory tract catarrh, yeah. which is a, yeah. another way of referring to a mucousy condition of the upper respiratory tract with some post-nasal drip. It has a reputation, uh, quite a profound reputation, for addressing that sort of condition in the upper respiratory tract, the sinuses, the nasal passages. That doesn't surprise me at all. It's part of its uh, known chemistry. Uh, There are constituents in the herb that could explain that particular action to lessen any inflammatory activity on the membrane, as well as addressing any mild levels of infection. So for listeners out there, again... Uh, your call is a very important call to to support me in my not being seen to be going overboard with this remedy, but also to mention to listeners one of the traditional uses for fenugreek, and that is using it on a regular basis, not just taking it now and then, but using it on a regular basis as a capsule or as a powder or as a decoction or an infusion. If you are troubled by what you obviously were, the use of fenugreek when persevered with has a good chance of really tidying up what's happening up there. So well done, Dave. Well done. Well done. <laughs> no, that's, yeah, well, it's, um, that's it, yeah. 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 Well done. It's, a, um, it's just very interesting because I'm 73 and for nearly my whole life I've yes. had 
hay fever and sinus yes. and yes. all that. Yes. And I've taken all sorts of different things. Yes. And I can honestly say oh. that since I've been taking that, I've mm. had nothing like the problem. It was life-changing. Absolutely. It was life-changing. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, no, and you know what? Here am I. I'm, I'm, I'm older than you. Uh, but what I am still uh, fascinated with is the way in which some of the substances that have been in our civilization for thousands of years uh, and go back to communities as, as aged and as well-known as the mm. Islamic community, that some of these simple substances, essentially uh, medicinal foods, are still capable yep. of addressing stubborn conditions for which even mainstream medical management can't do much better. It's it's yeah. it's one of the fascinating things that allow me to sit in my little garden study and draw on my voluminous library and stumble <laughs> across something and say, listen, I've got to exploit this. I've got to mention this. Uh, discoveries happened and you discovered this. I discovered also uh, a number of years ago Java kidney tea, which has changed, in my opinion, the whole possibility for people who are experiencing um, a kidney um, decline and uh, as a result of, of defining it and discovering its history and its benefit um, in Asian medicine was a real discovery and a real patient benefit. So you experience enlightenment. That's a nice term. You experience <laughs> herbal enlightenment. I am still experiencing it, and it's what keeps me going at this very aged stage of my life, the absolute obsession that we can have for finding this knowledge and this benefit that is still latent in traditional medicine. Traditional medicine must never, ever die. It must remain because you're finding uh, vouchers for its role, even in a modern society. Isn't it nice to mm. be able to find new things all it is. the time? It Thanks. is. Thanks it is. Thanks for Sid. Yep, yep, and yep. Uh, Dave has rung in from Tookley. Dave, uh, you're talking about prostate surgery and some leakage following that. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. That's right. And uh, I was listening on this program mm -hmm. um, be a couple of months ago yeah. now. Yes. And and I, I couldn't get to the I mean pen and paper quick enough. But one of the ones you mentioned was proserin, and there was a, another another vitamin, um, proserin, and, and um, I've got that. I I bought that and and. A, it worked for me, okay. and um, I, I, I never. Okay, go on, go on. And and there was another one you mentioned with it. Okay, you, you, uh, and I think is is uh, I think I'm right in saying this. The basis of it is the is the herb saw palmito. Um, you, you probably find that on the label. I think I'm right in saying that. Yes, that's correct. That's yes. correct. But also uh, a herb that uh, is interesting on, on the prostate and particularly uh, managing some symptoms of um, post-prostate uh, surgery is, is nettle root. Now, nettle root, it has become particularly popular uh, over the last decade or so in, in modern herbal medicine in its attempt to address various aspects of, of prostate uh, disease or prostate complications, as yours is. If you've benefited by saw palmito, uh, if you have benefited, um, yes. I would suggest that it would be worthwhile going to your pharmacy or your health food store and yes. getting a preparation to support it based on the nettle root. I, right. ma I make no promises, but those two herbs... Um, 
I take both of those. It's no secret. My, I, I take both those herbs every day because all men at my stage in life, um, well, not all, but many men, if not the majority, will experience some degree of, of prostate symptomatology as we get older. Uh, males' prostate, the, the prostate gland enlarges somewhat and can cause various um, symptoms. I take it as a preventative or a prophylactic agent and um, so that I can pee competently. In your situation, you're taking it as a means of coping with uh, some symptoms that have occurred post-surgery. Uh, Try the nettle root with Procerin and see how you go. Thanks very much. Thank you. Okay, Thank you. Dave. Thank you. All the very best with that, Dave. And we're moving to Abba Glasson and Sue has rung in. So you've got a, a very young granddaughter who's got a lot of mucus and you want to know whether fenugreek might help. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Hello, Sue. Look, I notice your okay. um, your granddaughter is, is only nine weeks old. Yes, that's right. Yeah, look, it would be quite inappropriate, in my opinion, um, to involve um, yourself uh, in, in, in treating or helping this condition. This, look, th- this is a condition that rightly belongs, in my opinion, in the domain of the GP and also the paediatrician. Um, it's it's likely that this condition will resolve itself. It's a little baby we're talking about here. Um, is is the baby being breastfed? No. Okay, okay. Uh, uh, is she on cow's milk? Yes. Okay. Look, um, this is only an opinion and you need to run it past your, your um, daughter or daughter-in-law that she should dus- discuss with her GP or paediatrician uh, a trial off cow's milk and perhaps a trial on goat's milk. Now, I know that sounds a little bit odd, but look, um, there's a mountain of literature suggesting that in some susceptible people, um, dairy product is a mucus-forming agent. Not in all. It's wrong to say, oh, dairy products are no good for you, they cause mucus. Not all, but um, there has been uh, literature written supporting the use of um, of goat's milk as an agent with a perhaps a less provocative um, uh, effect on on young children with a less mucus forming characteristic. Um, mention it to your GP. Mention let let the GP give you an opinion or the paediatrician. Um, all my kids after they went uh, from their dear mother's breast were put onto goat's milk. Uh, believe it or not, we had goats in our backyard. We Probably that was a different era, though. And yeah. n- none of our kids ever had mucousy conditions. Now, I'm not using that as proof or anything. Is is your granddaughter blue-eyed? It's hard to say, but yeah. the other two are. Everybody's yeah. blue-eyed in yeah. our family. Okay. Because, again, this might sound rather, um, how can I call it, unusual. But in my experience, uh, blue-eyed children seem to be more prone uh, to mucus and congestive conditions, and particularly as the little child gets older, uh, if you can locate around the periphery of the iris little white dots known in our profession as a lymphatic rosary, that, in my opinion, will most definitely say that she would be a child that would be advised not to have a lot of dairy product. Hmm. Okay. I'll have to go and check the other two. Yeah, yeah do that. Do <laughs> yes. that. I, I, I can tell you a little story that will vouch for that. Years ago, I had a, a listener ring in uh, talking about her daughter 
uh, in exactly the same way that you're talking about your granddaughter, only this little girl was considerably older. And um, uh, in the conversation, I I said to the mother, I said, now, is your daughter blonde? She said, oh, she's very blonde. I said, okay. I said, has she a, a broad nose? Oh, yes, she's got a broad nose. I said, does she have a, a blue iris? Yeah, she's got a blue iris. I said, have a look in the iris. Does it have little white spots around the periphery? She says, it has. She said, but Mr. Stewart, my daughter's never been to see you. She's not a patient. I said, I know that. I said, but there are certain constitutional body types which I give credit to, and the set of symptoms that you spoke about was so characteristic of what we call in our profession a lymphatic constitution that I I didn't need to be a genius to be able to describe the characteristics of your daughter. Now, a lot of my listeners, particularly those that are medical, might think I'm crazy, but that's based on experience. Don't do anything until you talk to your GP or your paediatrician, but I would give thought to the use of some goat's milk. Hmm. I have suggested it to her. Yep. But she said, oh... And I said about cow's milk making mucus, um, and she goes, no, that's an old wives' tale now. Yeah, well, that's changed. Let, let me just say that old wives' tales frequently have more truth in them some of the, than some of the so-called modern, trendy medical statements. I always respect old wives' tales, and I'll tell you something. The most of my knowledge and wisdom, if you like to call it that, has come from, from women, from a good patient wife, from the women that I have worked with, from very elderly women that looked after me as a, as a student in my younger days in Sydney. Many of the people in our profession are elderly women. Some of the best herbal medicine books, such as Mrs. Maud Greaves' book, Modern Herbal, was written by, by a woman. So what are called old wives' tales must never be forgotten because what they do, in my opinion, is embody the wisdom of the ages, which should never be lost, and I consider that to be more lightened to be more to be likely to be latent in the female than the arrogant male. To a new RFM's health naturally and Dennis Stewart is taking your calls. Marilyn is on the line from Maitland. Now, Marilyn, you're taking a number of different complementary medicines, is that right? Yes, over a period of probably 20 years. Um, we've taken advice from everywhere we've got it, and we Good. started off taking like um, a vitamin E yes. and fish oil. Yes, yes. Um, so we've continued with that. Yes. But to that, we've added um, olive oil taken orally. Yes. Um... What else? Um, oh, goodness me! Well, that's um, not, that's not a bad start. That's not a bad start at all. I'm, I'm one. You must I, you must have heard me speak frequently about olive oil. I, I consider it as being a, a, you know almost godlike in its possibilities. Um, yes. So if if you're using that particularly regularly and as part of your daily um, diet. You are, in, in my opinion, in a, in a good ballpark to use the American expression because olive oil, <laughs> olive oil, olive oil. I could talk about it all day, but uh, it's one of my most favourite oils. My husband has arthritis and has been yeah. taking curcumin. Um, yeah. We also, um, oh goodness, I must take a memory one. Um, oh, that's about the gist of it. Yeah. But my yeah, question yeah, was, yeah. how yeah. do I know um, what we need and 
are they doing good? Okay. My first comment, Marilyn, would be that I believe that people take too many things, mm. right? Uh, and uh, one shouldn't think that health is built on taking multiple things. Health is, health is built on a good lifestyle, a good diet based on knowledge, and you've heard me talk about the Mediterranean mm. diet and other aspects that, that go with it. Uh, mm -hmm. On the other hand, one can take on board some of the knowledge latent in, in, in tradition, which talks about agents and substances that can help resist disease. So what you're actually talking about there is that you are using substances which uh, probably are being taken on a preventative base. Yeah. And the things you're taking are essentially foods, like the oils you are taking, the fish mm -hmm. oil, the olive oil, they're essentially foods, but they do have, in my opinion, a preventative possibility. I've spoken about olive oil and its preventative action against uh, gastric irritation, against gallbladder pathologies, against constipational tendencies, and with reference to the fish oils in the right dosage, I recommend them ongoingly as agents to address some forms of arthritis, particularly rheumatoid, not so much osteoarthritis. Mm. And also uh, the fish oil can also be seen as a useful agent to helping to some degree maintain a useful cholesterol profile. Those things, I think, uh, can be seen as sensible, useful, knowledge-based uh, supplements to help prevent or resist, resist is a better term, some of the things that we're likely to cop as we get older, so to speak. And the use of curcumin uh, makes sense in as much that you have decided or your husband has decided to try a natural, mild anti-inflammatory agent uh, rather than go down the pathway of using stronger stuff at this stage. I see that as a sensible harnessing of uh, traditional medicine, of nutritional knowledge. You are not reaching out looking for miracle cures or taking this with the view of living uh, 150 years. You are using things sensibly. The only way that you can see that they're going to be effective is that hopefully you'll not come down with any of these things that you're working against. Nothing is guaranteed. But by doing a few things like this, you put yourself in a good ballpark. I've spoken about my daily use of saw palmito and, and nettle root my, my, my daily use also of hawthorn berry. Uh, I have uh, no major cardiovascular problems at this stage, but I take hawthorn berry because I know that in my family line, um, cardiovascular disease is, is very common. So mm. one can use these things uh, properly and sensibly without falling into the trap of thinking that everything that's advertised is going to do you good. Advertising is advertising but you can get sensible knowledge in complementary and traditional medicine by listening to programs hopefully like this, by talking to a good uh, uh, retail um, person, someone in a good health food store, and we have Butte Health Food Store retailers in, in this uh, Hunter Valley, uh, talking to them, talking to your pharmacist, and increasingly these days even raising some of these things with your GP because I'm finding 40 years down the track the opposition to using some of these things and discussing these things with patients uh, is not being poo-hooed by, by GPs any longer. Many of them are acknowledging 
uh, their, their patients' use of these things and even advising on them. Well done, yes, mm. and that's really good. really good point mm. to bring up, mm. Um, mm. just how do you know. Thank you very much, Marilyn, mm. for your call. Our last caller for today is Debbie, who's rung in from Cameron Park, and your, your tongue, somebody's tongue, is coated white, a white coating on your tongue. Hello? Hello, Debbie? Oh, we seem to have lost Debbie. Okay, well, perhaps you can well, comment on that, yeah, look, Dennis. The whiteness of the tongue can, can mean many things. Um, it, it should always uh, be looked at from the point of view of if it comes about, have it looked at by your GP. The tongue can give signs and symptoms of things that are going on in the gastrointestinal tract. It would be wrong for me to say, oh, this is what it means. First up... Always first up, run things like this past your GP. It is only when the medical investigation has ruled out any major contributing factors should something like this be looked at from the point of view of perhaps dietary modification, uh, perhaps a, a lack of ability to handle certain foods. Get it looked at first. That's the thing that I would advise. Uh, generally speaking, I have found that most white-coated tongues don't really mean much more than perhaps uh, an irritable gut, a little bit of uh, dyspepsia, a little bit of nervous dyspepsia, uh, mainly functional conditions. Have it looked at. Before I go, Jane, quickly, I just wanted to mention with reference to fenugreek. Yes. I hope we've done justice to it. I could talk all day about it. Two areas where it is dramatically beneficial is in helping as a food supplement taken regularly to reduce cholesterol levels. Now you've still got mm. a minute to and cholesterol levels. Cholesterol levels. This is there are in fact uh, on the world stage today some sophisticated powdered preparations produced in France uh, that are based on fenugreek and have behind them uh, a medical uh, acceptance. I think don't hold me to this. Uh, years ago, I imported a product. I think it was called Fenulife or Fenulite a great product, uh, which I was going to have um, encapsulated, but I didn't get round to it. But it represented, if you like, a modern understanding of the role of this remarkable substance to participate as a perfectly harmless substance in helping reduce moderately, moderately elevated levels of cholesterol. Uh, and listeners know my view on this, that I, I believe that too frequently... Uh, the heavy guns are used to address cholesterol when, in fact, my opinion always is for moderately elevated levels of cholesterol uh, under the guidance of the GP, softer agents like fenugreek perhaps should be used. Mm, and that's Health Naturally for mm. today. Thank you, Dennis Stewart. Thank you, Jane. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.